You know, if God made everything, then God made the devil, right? That's a good question. We'll talk about that today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hember. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV, a program taking you through the Bible in one year. We're very excited as we study through Ezekiel. We're going to be looking at the question of where did Lucifer come from? We'll talk about that and more as we continue in just five minutes. Corey is here. Corey? I'm going to be taking a look at sailing in ancient Israel. Ryan? Today, to go along with Ezekiel's imagery of the Garden of Eden in chapter 28, my segment also looks back to the beginning as we discuss how Satan could have manipulated a serpent to speak. That's right. Actually, uh, this is a really interesting passage today because, yeah, God mentions that. And who's he talking to? Satan. Very interesting. Janice? Making it right is my segment today. All right. Get your Bible guide out. Turn to today's passage. If you don't have one, we'll tell you, you can, how you can get a hold of it. Call us or write to us. But let's listen to what God says. Ezekiel 28 11 through 19. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones." Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by iniquity of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst, it devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 19. We come to the part of Ezekiel, chapter 28, 29, and 30, where it gets very interesting. As we focus on the end of Ezekiel, it is fascinating. Now, the gospel or the good news is life, death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. 
So when Jesus had received the sour wine on the cross, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now that's according to John chapter 19, verse 30. God did not simulate death. He allowed himself to be cast into death. There were several things that the Lord did in the afterlife that gave him the perfect and the absolute right to undo what God's own creation, man, had done many years before. Satan, the devil, the destroyer, is the one that Jesus Christ defeated. We live in a world today still troubled by that evil one. But those who accept Jesus Christ and follow him as Lord have the authority and the power through God's Holy Spirit to overcome the schemes of lust and pride and vanity. It's very interesting, I'll tell you. Now in Isaiah 14, we read about Satan. And in today's reading of Ezekiel 38, or rather Ezekiel 28, we read about a mysterious passage which speaks of our enemy as God speaks to the king of Tyre. Now, learning about Satan is challenging, but good. We must not befriend him, but know that we have conquered him through Jesus Christ. We have conquered him. A lot of people are not aware of that. As we look at this, I'd like you to take your Bible guide, turn to today's passage. Uh, this is in August and it was sent out and hopefully you got yours. If you didn't, you can call us or write to us or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And when you go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, just click on the Bible Guide page and it will take you to donate. And we thank you so much for your donations. We very much appreciate them. And uh, what I'll do is take you to another page where you can download it as it is written in the guide and as it is printed in the Bible. Now, the Bible is the most important book, but the guide just helps you go through it and understand what's going on. And we write that fresh every month and brand new. Today, the study of the enemy. I know a lot of people get very excited and they treat this in different ways. Nevertheless, how does the Bible treat it? How does the word of God treat it? That's how we need to position ourselves. So chapter 28 is the proclamation against the king of Tyre, which is very interesting because we are talking about Satan. And then in chapter 29, it's the proclamation against Egypt, the strongest nation of the day. And then it says in verse 17, Babylonian will plunder Egypt. And then in chapter 30, Egypt, her allies, they will all fall. And then, of course, later on in the verse, the proclamation against Pharaoh. So this is all about what God is going to do and the downcast, if you would, of all of these nations who have positioned themselves for God. Today, chapter 28, verses 11 through 19, Father, help us today as we focus our attention on your word and as we hear what you've said about the enemy. This is very important, Lord, so help us to take this information and to prepare our hearts for it in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Ezekiel 28, beginning with verse 11, first time we've ever taught on it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
You were in Eden, the garden of God. That's interesting. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Now, this is amazing. God created the angel, Lucifer, not the destroyer or the devil. All right. God makes all things good. Sin invents evil with the things of God. I remember a young man coming to me saying, Pastor, I haven't asked the pastor a question. I said, go ahead. He said, well, God made everything. So did he make the devil? And I said, actually, he didn't, sir. He made Lucifer and Lucifer allowed his trading to twist him up and he became evil. And so, beloved, we are given the opportunity in this life to choose God. And my suggestion to you is to choose Jesus Christ because he is Lord. Very important. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14 says this. The Jewish prophet says, you were the anointed cherub. That's an angel who covers. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you and you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. In fact, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. I, I'm telling you, there are so many things we could preach on beyond this. But nevertheless, let's keep it to free choice created Satan. Free will is important, but we are responsible for the choices we make with the free will. You're responsible for the choices you make. You can't just make the choices as this world likes to do. Free choice, free choice, free choice. Make all these decisions. You have to live with the decisions you make and other people around you are forced to live with it as well. So beloved, we make decisions following God because he knows who's around us and he helps us to make the right decisions. So it's very important to hear that. Now let's go on and look at Ezekiel 28, 16 to 19. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you, says the Lord, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You're corrupted or you corruptedly uh, corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I have brought fire from your midst and it devours you. And I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. and You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Oh my goodness, this is how God dealt with Satan. It was pride that killed Lucifer and created Satan. Killed the angel and created destruction. We do not need self-esteem. 
we need Christ esteem. It is God who lifts us up. Remember that. Hi, Rod Hember here. We go through the Bible every year from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now you can join us and watch at the time you like by searching Bible Discovery TV on the Roku box or on Amazon Fire TV. Anytime you want to watch us, we're there. Get a hold of it. Watch us anytime you want to. You know, in our assigned reading today, the prophet Ezekiel talks about the city of Tyre. And that always makes me think of seafaring and sailing and, and merchantry on the waters because that's what Tyre, the city of Tyre was known for. They were a major port city on the Mediterranean Sea. They had a huge monopoly over trade. Uh, you know, their city included a city on the shore and an island city as well. Uh, all really interesting things. But then that, that got me thinking about seafaring and boating in general and how that relates to ancient Israel. So let's take a look at seafaring in ancient Israel. While not a major seafaring nation, the land of Israel did have reasons and opportunities to develop seafaring technology. There were select pockets or areas where this was necessary, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, the areas surrounding the Sea of Galilee, and on the shores of the Dead Sea. When breaking down the human motivation for seafaring, two reasons become obvious. First, in harvesting various and valuable resources, like fish from the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee, and bitumen from the Dead Sea. Second, in being able to travel across the water in order to trade these goods more efficiently and enhance commerce overall. Biblically, we see King Solomon develop a fleet of trade ships in partnership with the seafaring city-states of Tyre and Sidon. Through archaeological work, it's known that these areas in Israel were being used for resources and travel long before Israel was even a nation. Shells from the Mediterranean and Red Seas and Dead Sea bitumen have been found at sites throughout Israel, Jordan, and Egypt, dating from the Neolithic era and onward. This shows that from very early on, there were not only sea products available, but there was a widespread demand for them. This demand would have fueled seafaring technology. Better, faster, more secure ways would be sought to collect more efficiently, and ways to safely transport and effectively trade these goods would become a priority. There's an interesting study that's been done on the Dead Sea area specifically that demonstrates the natural but quick growth of seafaring technology. The Dead Sea's most valuable resource is by far its bitumen deposits that float to the surface of the water. The sea's difficult shoreline and the sheer size and value of the bitumen lumps that would surface made collecting them by raft and boat a much more attractive idea than waiting for the wind to carry the deposits to shore. This would have served as motivation for the development of rafts and boats. The next challenge faced by harvesters of Dead Sea bitumen would have been transporting their goods once collected and processed. There is a lot of unhospitable desert and land surrounding the Dead Sea that would have to be covered if the trips were attempted on land. Crossing the sea, however, was shorter by up to three times and overall just an easier, more direct distance. 
This Dead Sea travel is documented from the Hellenistic time period onwards, but was likely initiated much earlier than this. How early is not known. But the demand for Dead Sea bitumen was widespread, as seen from remains at Neolithic sites, and in the early 2000s, the discovery of a 7th century BC anchor pushed the evidence date for seafaring into the time of the kings of Israel. While this study on the Dead Sea doesn't give us a conclusive date for how early residents utilized seafaring, it does show the whys behind the process. Value, demand, industry, and convenience all drove people to become creative with the world around them and monopolize on good opportunities. So there we go. We don't often think of ancient Israel as a, a major, you know, seafaring nation, but there definitely were areas, uh, maritime areas within the country, and they absolutely utilized uh, the technology of seafaring and boating just to enhance their life, enhance their travel, enhance their trade and their economic situations. It was absolutely fascinating, and and to the, the because Israel was had the ocean on one side, mm -hmm. the Mediterranean Sea, and then they have, of course. The Lake of Galilee, which is much smaller. And the Dead Sea. And mm -hmm. the Dead Sea. Well, well, yeah, I mean, not too many people are fishing on the Dead Sea. Not fishing, there's no fish not fishing, but <laughs> definitely boating and traveling yeah. and harvesting yeah. the bitumen and things of that nature. Yeah, very, very interesting mm -hmm. stuff, Corey. Thank you so much, Ryan. All right, well, today my segment looks back to the Garden of Eden because that's exactly what God does in Ezekiel 28, 13. The Lord even appears to be calling out Satan himself in this passage and that's precisely who my segment is about today. Now, just as Satan seems to have used this human ruler of Tyre as his puppet, he also did it with a serpent in his deception of Eve back in Genesis. And I know this Genesis passage is really hard to swallow for a lot of people, both critics and Christians alike. I mean, it's one thing for Satan to possess a human being and speak and to speak, but to enter a serpent and make it speak seems completely out of the question, right? Well, Let's take a look at this more closely. Although the Bible claims to be God's word nearly 4,000 times and maintains that every word of God proves true, it tells a seemingly far-fetched story in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent spoke to Eve. Many scoff at the account of a talking snake, and even several Christians want to make this account metaphorical rather than historical. But perhaps it's not so far-fetched as it sounds. Consider, for example, the many types of parrots that can mimic human speech. Certainly, if God gave this ability to parrots, then there is very good reason to believe that he also gave it to some of the other types of animals as well, especially in a perfect creation. And despite the fact that numerous animal types have since gone extinct, many animals even today communicate through sound or mimicry. Of course, mimicking human speech and speaking intelligibly is not the same thing. And when the serpent spoke, it was clever enough to deliver a cogent message capable of deceiving her. So then, how are we to understand this account? Since the Bible clearly identifies both a literal serpent as well as a demonic presence in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, we can rule out the idea that Satan merely took the form of a serpent. The serpent was indeed a real animal that Satan indwelt. And aside from Genesis 3, the only other instance of an animal talking in the Bible is Balaam's donkey, and this was only through the power of God. And since no other place in scripture reveals that Satan or demons have the power to cause animals to speak, it makes more sense that the serpent could make the sounds capable of speech, and Satan used this to his advantage. 
In essence, Satan likely used this feature that the original serpent had and caused it to say what he wanted. Certainly, serpents do not mimic speech today, but there is a reasonable explanation for this. Because of the fall, there was a total cosmic and physiological shift, which might mean that this particular kind of serpent did not pass along the genetic information required for speech, or has since gone extinct. So let's not doubt God's word as Adam and Eve did. Every word of God from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22 can be trusted and will ultimately prove true. So I really hope that this got you thinking. And you know, there is another possibility as well, which is that in our pre-fallen state, we may have been able to understand and communicate with the animal kingdom. In any case, as I mentioned in the segment, this passage of scripture can be hard for some to believe. And even a lot of Christians want to make the Genesis account metaphorical rather than historical, even though it is clearly recording actual events as many of the other biblical writers confirm. But the answer isn't to change the plain meaning of the biblical text to fit what we believe is reasonable. That's elevating man's word above God's word. And next to God, we know nothing. So what we need to do is let God teach us what happened rather than us telling God what happened. And as Martin Luther put it, if you cannot understand how such a thing could have been done, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. For you are to deal with scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written. But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you to wantonly to turn his word in the direction you wish it to go. God says what he means, and he means what he says. In fact, that's true. And the, the difficulty is that a lot of people have a hard time believing that this is the word of God. But we in this program believe this is the word of God. And so, you know, that's how we teach it. And I think that becomes very, very important because once your mind is filled with doubt, then it's easy to, to write off that nothing is real and nothing, everything changes, you know. But when there's an objective truth, you have to say, well, to kill somebody is wrong and to steal is wrong, and to these, all these things are wrong, not because we feel or decide, but because the Bible says it. Mm -hmm. And that's important, very important. Well, and I think too, Rod, I mean, there have, we, we have heard many testimonies, we've read many testimonies, I think we all have in our studies, of people who have come to the Word of God in doubt. Mm -hmm. They set out to read it to prove God wrong, to prove that it's wrong, to prove believers wrong. And they end up actually coming to know the Lord, that their spirit is confronted um, and they turn their hearts to, to come to the Lord. So you might be one of those people watching right now that you doubt this word. And I would challenge you to pick it up and read it with an open heart, with an open mind as much as humanly possible. And, uh, and I believe that God will win that God will win out every time because Rod is right. We do, our family does believe in the word of God. We believe that God is creator, that he's our heavenly father. And uh, we have experienced that individually and also as a family. Uh, our family was healed and is continually healed through the word of God. Now, do we get sick? Of course, that's not what I mean. Our lives have been transformed by the word of God. And oftentimes it's very uncomfortable because it doesn't say the things that we'd like it to say, or it doesn't stroke the feelings that I like to continue on with, but find out that they're wrong. And that's really kind of where my segment was going today, making it right. You know, as we're going through Ezekiel, I had mentioned to Ryan and Corey just earlier before we started to take uh, the camera rolling, that there's so, Ezekiel is not an easy book. 
uh, especially to get segments from. But this, you know, these last few chapters, it's proclamations against the king of Tyre. It's proclamation against Egypt, proclamation against Sidon. There's so many proclamations against. There's so much going on. And every time I read through it, I see different things within these people groups that willfully chose against God. They willfully chose against and and judgment comes. And this is what happens even today in our lives now. You can believe what you want to believe. I can believe what I want to believe. And I believe that God is the ultimate and perfect judge. And he gives us the responsibility. He gives us the free will choice to make the decision that we want to make in life. If we're not following God, then we are not a believer. We're not a Christian. We're following something else. And if you, maybe that's you. Maybe you you think you're your own God. You're your, your own person. Or maybe it's your family. Maybe you've put your family first before anything else. Maybe it's your job. I don't know what it is. But we need to remember that God has made a way for us to choose and to be reconciled to him. Remember, he's a holy God. He's a perfect God. And he can't live with sin around him. And he has made a way because there is no human being that has not sinned. We are all, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he made provision through his son, Jesus Christ for us to be reconciled to him. We will not be perfect. Um, it's, it's a growing and changing life that we live when we understand and we make the decision, you know, Lord Jesus, When you said that you are the son of God, when we understand that he is fully God and fully man, that we believe that he died on the cross to save our sins, that he was the only one able to do that once and for all, and that he rose again on the third day in the flesh that gives us who follow him the gift of eternal life. That doesn't mean we don't die. We will die. When this earthly body perishes, I go from life here to life with Jesus forever. And that's a wonderful promise. But we have those decisions to make. We will not be judged by God when we are forgiven by Jesus Christ. And because of the blood that he shed on his cross, our sins become white. And when God looks at us now, he sees his son Jesus and the work on the cross. So just some things to consider as we read through these judgments of God proclamations against these nations. Let's not be willfully negligent, but make the right decisions. Today we pray as we conclude the program, and I would like to remind you that we are available Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Facebook and YouTube, Bible Discovery TV, and on Bible Discovery TV, the the webpage, uh, live to pray for you. But let's pray today and say, Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace towards me. Help me to keep myself repentant towards you. In Jesus' wonderful name, this is what we all pray together, and we said together, amen. 